Our passage this morning is taken from Philippians 1, verse 27 to 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us to know you and to live our lives in obedience and pleasing you. We pray now for Wayne, that you will be with him as he comes to minister the word to us. We pray that your spirit will be with him and that he will bring the message that you would have him to bring. And Father, we pray that our hearts would be receptive to your word and that we would go out praising you and willing to, willing to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Look at this idea that Paul has of living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. In 2011, there was a study where uh, individuals, they were talking with groups of people, and they wanted to see the impact that an image or a metaphor can have on people. And so they, they said, in your neighborhood, in your community, there's crime. Here are the statistics. They gave the exact same statistics to both groups. The only thing that changed was with one group, they said crime is like a virus infecting your community. And with the other group, they said crime is like a wild beast ravaging your community. And what they noticed was that even regardless of political affiliation, whenever they said it was a virus, people tended to look at root causes and things like underperforming schools. And whenever they said it was a wild beast, people tended to focus on policing practices, putting more police officers out there. The metaphor, the image, did not simply express what they already believed. It even changed how they lived. And when we look at images or metaphors in the Bible, these are not simply flowery expressions. They're, they're specific images chosen for specific audiences for a specific reason with the goal of challenging them and how they live. And when we look at the image that is used in Philippians, we see a, a unique one. Uh, when Paul would write his letters, he tended to, to use the image of walking whenever he would talk about the Christian life. Whenever he wanted to talk about just the general behavior of the Christian, he would say, walk properly. Walk in a manner worthy of Christ. He does it in Romans, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians. He uses a different image in the letter to the Philippians. The main passage in Philippians is the, or are the verses that we read this morning. Uh, and I think we can see that because, first of all, it's the first command in the book. Paul begins with his introduction, his greeting. He gives an update of what's happened to him. But the very first command that he gives is this idea of, Live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
And he also attaches this word only. And we can say this sounds just like a preacher, right? He says, I'm only going to ask you to do one thing. And then he goes on for another three chapters and mentions about 15 other things that they need to be doing. But there is this word only attached to the command, live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And when we read the rest of the letter, we realize that everything that he talks about in this short passage uh, or everything that he talks about in the rest of the letter, we can find it mentioned in a very dense fashion in this short section. Everything that he's going to talk about relates to this idea of what does it look like to live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he uses a, a specific word, polytueste is the Greek word that he uses. And uh, it comes from, it has the same root as the word polis, which means city. And it has the same root as another word used in the book of Philippians, polituma. In chapter 3, verse 20, Paul is going to say, your citizenship is in heaven. So at the root of this word, live your life in a manner, there's this idea of citizenship. Uh, That's at the root. A number of commentators have pointed this out, that Paul is specifically drawing on the image of citizenship as he's speaking to the church at Philippi. Why? Why did he use this image at this church and not in the other places. I think one of the, the answers to the question is Philippi was unique. It was part of uh, important, uh, an important battle for the Roman Empire. It was a city that was established by former soldiers. And it was also a city that had full citizenship rights. This was a place that if we're talking about places within the Roman Empire, there was some prestige to being a citizen of Rome, that there was something to this idea. Whenever they heard live like a good citizen, they were thinking about more than just don't leave your trash on the ground. It, that image carried had a uh, significance to them. And so Paul's drawing on that image, saying you, you, you have reasons to be proud of, uh, of your citizenship in Rome. I want to draw your attention to a, your citizenship, which is elsewhere your citizenship, which is in heaven. Uh, and so that's what he's going to talk about. And when he talks about being, uh, or that's one reason why I love the translation, uh, the New Living Translation puts it as, above all, so that's that only, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Above all, this is the main thing. You're not a citizen of Rome, you're a citizen of heaven, and you live your life in a way that's going to be worthy of the gospel. So this raises the question, what does that look like? Okay, so I'm a citizen of heaven. How do I do that? And Paul is going to mention in the next couple verses, and then he's going to fill that out more in the rest of the letter, what does it look like to live like a citizen of heaven? And there are three different things that I want to highlight uh, one, you can see in verse 27. Um, let me pick up there. Let your life, manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I'm a hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Striving for the faith of the gospel. 
That is one thing. A second thing, which is mentioned in the exact same phrase, is one spirit, one mind, side by side. Unity is connected to this. And then a third one, we keep going in verse 28, not being frightened in anything by your opponents. So if we want to know what does it look like to live as a citizen of heaven with uh, the gospel of Christ being our focal point, there's three things. Number one, strive for the faith of the gospel. Number two, stand, uh, stand firm, side by side, one spirit, one mind. And number three, don't be frightened. Not being frightened in anything at all. And Paul develops this idea some more. First of all, the idea of what does it mean striving for the faith of the gospel? I think as we read the book of Philippians, there's two ideas that come out at us. Uh, number one, preserve the message. We can be all about the gospel, but if we're changing what the gospel is, then we're not honoring the gospel. We're not living lives that are worthy of the gospel. And we see Paul address this in chapter 3. There are people who are wanting to come in and say, yes, you believe in Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised. You also need to follow the Jewish law. You need to, we need to add this. And Paul is saying, that's not a life worthy of the gospel. If, if we live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, we are preserving that message. We're, we're not going to add something to it. And what is, uh, very tempting to do on the opposite extreme is, well, I don't want to offend somebody. So instead of adding something, Maybe I'm going to take something out so that it's a little less offensive. And, and while Paul's not addressing that specific issue in this letter, we do know that you, you can't take out essential elements and you can't add things that shouldn't be there. Preserving the message is an essential part of what it means to live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. A second idea that comes from the book of Philippians is it, if, if you're a citizen of heaven, you're about seeing the gospel go out. It's not just this discussion in-house where we're making sure that uh, we have correct doctrine. Yet, Yes, it is that. But we also want to be outside of the church. We want to see people hearing the gospel. Think about what Paul says in the beginning in the greeting. He says, I am so thankful for you guys because we have a partnership in the gospel. The letter to the Philippians is unique. It's not like Galatians or the Corinthians where he's saying, hey, straighten up, you knuckleheads. Uh, he, he, he has a close relationship with the church at Philippi. And he's saying, we've been partners in the gospel. We see he also is saying in, in chapter 1, you know what, I'm in jail, and I want to let you know that I'm okay, but don't worry about the fact that I'm in jail. Because as a citizen of heaven, I want to see more people hearing about the gospel. And guess what? All the guards around me, they're hearing it. And, and he also said, not only that, but this isn't just something I do, but there are other people who are hearing about what's happening to me, and they have been emboldened. They have gotten courage. That When we look at Paul, we see someone who, no matter what happens, he has a focus. He Nothing seems to faze him. It, it, in some ways, it, it reminds me of a movie that many of you may not have seen, but Dumb and Dumber that came out in the 90s. And uh, I see my, my old roommate there laughing. Uh, the, 
Lloyd Christmas, he, he really wanted to go out with Mary Swanson. And, and he's saying, hey, give it to me straight. What are my chances? One in a hundred? I'd say more like one in a million. So you're saying there's a chance, right? Persistence. It, it doesn't matter what I can see around me. I've got one thing. I've got one thought. I don't care how bad things look. When we look at Paul, he is saying, I want to find new ways to see the gospel go out. I don't care if I'm in prison. That's fine. I want to see the gospel go out. Uh, the second way that we see uh, Paul describing what it means to be a citizen of heaven, living for the gospel of Christ, uh, standing firm in one spirit and in one mind. And initially we might wonder, well, what, what is this connection? Right? If we're, if we're primarily about, uh, going out telling other people about the gospel, it almost seems like he's making a distraction by saying, yes, we need to be doing that, but by the way, there's also this unity component. And it's interesting, this is the first thing he tackles. This is all of chapter two, which is about living in unity. So why? Why is Paul saying we need to see the gospel go out? But we also need to make sure that we have unity, that we have one spirit, one mind, that we're standing side by side. What's the connection there? We can see in chapter 2, he, he tells us what the connection is. He says, don't grumble, don't complain, don't let this characterize what your life is like. Why? Uh, because if we don't, if we are not like that, then we're going to be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and, per and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights. And this, th there's this idea that if, if there's a certain type of behavior that characterizes the body of Christ, then that's going to be attractive. That's going to shine out. And on the flip side, if, if you don't have that, then that's going to hinder. That's going to hurt. So that's what you have to have. Um, this should not surprise us. This was part of Jesus' prayer. I pray for the disciples. I pray that you will be one uh, so that other people will know that the Father sent me. Our unity advances the gospel. And to think about how much easier the apostles could have made their lives had they downplayed this element, right? Think about the book of Romans. All right, chapter 2 addressing Jewish arrogance, chapter 11 addressing Gentile arrogance, chapter 14 or 13 addressing which day is the most important, Galatians, what is it? Well, we've got Jews and Gentiles not getting along. 1 Corinthians 11, what's the problem? Well, you got rich people wanting to eat ahead of poor people. Why didn't the apostles just say, all right, Jewish church on Saturday, Gentile church on Sunday, rich meet at 6, and the poor meet at 9 after they've gotten off work? And we'll just, the New Testament would be a lot shorter had they come up with that solution. But no, that, that is an unacceptable solution because if we want the gospel to go out, we can't just say, well, let's get our click over here and you take your click over there. The gospel doesn't go out if we live like that. We need to be people that are showing that uh, the gospel is not just a message we, we preach, but it's transforming us. Um, and he gives different ideas of what does it look like. Uh, one, it's an aggressive unity. Whenever he says 
who was, who was our model? It's Jesus. He says, if you want to know how to live, you live like Jesus did. And you consider the needs of other people as more important than your own. So you're not just passively thinking, well, if somebody comes to me and lets me know that they need something, I'll help. He's saying, no, there, this is an aggressive unity. We're, we're trying to be proactive in thinking about what are the needs that are out there. Another point, it goes beyond the local church. Uh, if we don't have these documents, but if we did have church directories of the first century, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, and the Philippians were not all in the same church directory. They were not in the same local congregation. But when you read chapter 2, when Paul's wanting to give you examples of what does it look like to consider other people as more important than yourself, number one is Jesus. Number two, Epaphroditus, who the Philippian church sent to go visit Paul. And number three is Timothy, who he's traveling around meeting needs. This idea of unity is not just within a local congregation, but it's broader than that. And then the last idea that's, that's part of this is not being frightened. And, and when Paul writes that you should not be frightened, you should not be worried about the dangers that are out there, we need to realize this was not theoretical. This was not, hey, listen, someday things might get bad and something could happen to you. Things had already happened. If, if we read the book of Acts, we realize that there were times whenever uh, Paul or someone else would preach and they would get thrown in jail. Someone else would preach. They would get beaten. Uh, Paul, whenever he's about to go to Jerusalem, there are people saying, slow down, you can die. So this is not theoretical. And another idea that uh, we can also miss is that this danger was partially avoidable. Whenever we think about the early church, we, we think about how they were persecuted, and they were. But what's interesting when we study it is that there were only a few pockets and only a few emperors who were very systematic in their persecution of Christians. And I want you to think about this. Was Paul in prison because he was a Christian or because he was preaching the gospel? How is it that Epaphroditus, a Christian, is able to visit Paul without fear of getting thrown in jail himself? The reason Paul was often in jail wasn't because he was a Christian, but because he was a Christian and he was saying something about it. If he had just kept his mouth shut, he now life was still difficult to be a Christian in the first century. Religion pervaded everything. So I'm not saying the first century Christian had it easy as long as they weren't out preaching the gospel, but a lot of threats were greatly minimized. With that, there's a letter uh, from the emperor Trajan to uh, a local administrator, Pliny, where he talks about this idea: don't go out looking for Christians, but if you find them in court, punish them. This threat was real, but it was partially avoidable if they chose not to speak out. And that's why Paul is saying, the threat's real, but you cannot be afraid. You need to step up. You need to. Keep serving. You need to uh, advance the gospel. And and how is it, right? I mean, is Paul like Lloyd Christmas from Dumb and Dumber, 
who is, so you're saying there's a chance, right? It's funny because he's just clueless. He has no idea what's going on. Is that's what's happening with Paul, that he's not phased by anything and he keeps going before, he keeps moving forward because he's clueless and he doesn't know what's going on. No, that's not it at all. If, if we go back to the uh, chapter 1, verse 29, we see this phrase, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe, but also suffer. How is suffering a gift? In chapter 3, Paul's going to say, because that makes you like Christ. That, that's what you should be wanting. So whenever someone says, hey, maybe tone it down a little bit. Remember, our lives as Christians would be easier if you would just shut up. Paul's saying, I'm not afraid of suffering. Somebody thinks that's going to hinder me, but it isn't. It's, it's advancing what I want to see happen. I want to become like Christ. So why, why would I be afraid? Paul is not clueless. He knows exactly what's happening and he's charging ahead. Uh, so when we look at these three ideas that come from the passage, how does this change the way we live? How, how in our lives today do we live as citizens of heaven, recognizing that we're citizens of heaven first, not America or wherever other, whatever other country we're from. We're first of all citizens of heaven. What does that look like? Uh, number one, under this idea of striving for the faith of the gospel, are we looking for opportunities to share the gospel? Is that something that we we lie awake in bed wondering, how can I do this better? Uh, let me think of new ways. Whenever we think of Paul suffering, he, he was not suffering because he was a passive individual and these things just happened to him. He was active, making conscious decisions, saying, I want to go here. I know this is going to hurt, but this is an opportunity for the gospel. That's why he can sit in a prison cell, a prison cell and say, I don't care. Don't be, don't be discouraged. This is a good thing. Are we looking for opportunities? And notice here, this is a command to the whole church. This is not to the pastor of the church or the elders of the church saying that group there, you need to preserve the gospel and make sure that this gets preached. He's saying, everybody, this is what you're about. You need to be preaching the gospel, advancing the gospel. And I want to touch on one specific application point that is relevant to my ministry and I think is very relevant to the evangelical church in America is how do we think about immigrants being among us? What image comes to your mind when you hear that phrase? Is it one of fear? Or is it one of opportunity? Is there this idea of, wow, there are these people who there's no church by them. There's no missionary among them. And they're here and they're asking me questions about my faith. And every year they travel back and they talk to their family members. Am I thinking, what an amazing opportunity? 
Or am I focused on, wow, there's a, there's a threat here. There's a fear. And, and I want to be careful. The, the Bible does not call us to be foolish. I'm, I'm fully aware of that. I'm fully aware of the fact that Paul at times did go away from opportunities to suffer. He, he was not uh, someone that just looked for suffering in and of itself. But he was all about the opportunities. And, and for the church, we need to think through, what does a, a, me as a citizen of heaven, how does this change my politics? If certain laws change, some of the people I work with, if, if they were different laws about 10, 20, 15 years ago, they wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be sharing the gospel with them. How, how does this change the way that we look at politics? Are we thinking about these opportunities? And I, I realize this still leaves the question of, well, what's the specific policy we should be vote for or who's the candidate that we should vote for? And at that point, I will quote my Uncle Jimmy who, who used to say, I've already told you more than I know. So I don't know the specific answer there, but I do know that opportunity should factor into our decision-making. That, that's got to be a part of our decision-making whenever we think about these issues. Uh, so one, are we looking for opportunities? Uh, and number two, are we aggressively pursuing unity? Do we realize that the way we treat each other impacts the gospel, impacts the gospel going forward? Let me give you an example of something I just read this past week. Uh, I did not realize this, but when Billy Graham began his crusades, the audience was segregated. And initially, Billy Graham said, I don't want to, I want to focus on the gospel. So I don't want to touch that issue. Is that in line with what Paul is saying, where he's saying unity is something that advances the gospel? Now, fortunately, Billy Graham did change. He did change that policy after a few years. But do we think about that? Uh, to, to say, well, I'm not going to focus on issues that impact my Christian brothers and sisters because I'm focused about evangelism and discipleship. That's like me saying, I love my family. And because I love my family, I don't have time for my kids. I need to focus on my wife. They're together. They're, they're, they're related. They're connected. We can't just pick one and say, I'm all about family, but I don't have time for my kids. We can't say I'm all about the gospel, but I don't have time to listen to my brothers and sisters in Christ who are in different situations than I am. We've got to have the conversation. One thing I'm excited about, uh, the Gospel Coalition, they're, they're doing more addressing this topic. Uh, in April, there's going to be a conference in Memphis. I'd love to see some of y'all come. They're going to be talking about this, this idea of racial reconciliation. And there are uncomfortable topics being brought up where everyone does not agree. And yet there is an area of agreement. Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. He died for us. And by faith in Him, we can have our sins forgiven. And there is unity in that. If there's unity in that, then we can think through, okay, what are the, what are the needs of my brothers and sisters? How can I be thinking about their lives and not doing this? Well, I don't have time to address their needs. I need to focus on the gospel. We need to break down that dichotomy. 
And then the last one, put fear in its place. Uh, we need to be wise, for sure. Uh, I definitely grant that. But fear cannot be what guides us. And, and that, as I was thinking through a good illustration for this idea, it, I, I was trying to come up with, with something that would convey the idea that uh, of where fear can cause us to miss certain opportunities. And I think if we thought hard, we could probably all come up with, with an idea of where we were afraid and we missed out on something. Or where we were afraid, but we went anyways and, and we so realized what we would have missed out on. And I was trying to think of an image, realizing how important images are. Uh, and, and yet, then I came back to, well, what, what did Paul use? What was, what was Paul's image? And there is an image beyond, uh, or connected to, but beyond this, this idea of citizenship. In the letter to the Philippians, there is 15 times in four short chapters where Paul is saying Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. This is the image that he's putting in everyone's mind. Jesus is Lord. And think about the significance of this. When we understand the context of the first century world, we know that Roman emperors loved titles. They, they took on titles, I am the preeminent one. Whenever they would win a military victory, they would say, I am your savior. That's the word they, they would use. They would announce their military victories as the gospel. That's the word they would use. This is good news. I am your savior. I have provided for you. Now think about the things that Paul says against that backdrop. You know, how do we not live in fear? Okay, Paul is saying, Jesus is Lord. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we're eagerly awaiting Jesus, our Savior and Lord. And then we see in chapter 2, Paul is saying, Jesus was crucified, something that was meant to humiliate people, and yet he was not humiliated. And in fact, one day, every single knee is going to bow down and praise him. And when Paul makes that statement, he's quoting a passage from Isaiah where the prophet Isaiah is talking about how every pagan king out there who opposes God will bow the knee and will confess with their tongue that, that God rules. So what is the image that, that Paul is conveying to people to not be frightened? Jesus is Lord. And the clear implication of that is the emperor is not. Right? I mean, to, to give a modern example of this, imagine if today someone preached a sermon where every three minutes they were saying, only Jesus can make your life great. Only Jesus can make your life great again. And... While our culture might think that Jesus is the ultimate loser, He's the ultimate winner, and one day every single knee is going to bow down and confess that He's the ultimate winner. We would not hear someone preach that sermon and think, I'm glad they stayed away from politics. We would, we would know what they were saying. They're, they're, they're making a political statement. They're saying, this is who we follow, not over here. And Paul is wanting to draw our eyes the image that we should have is Jesus is Lord. Where is our allegiance? And 
when we think about that ultimate question of where is our allegiance, I think that's going to be a little different for everybody. Maybe there's competition with our allegiance for the political party we support. Maybe for the political party we oppose. Maybe it's for our football team. Maybe it's for our Netflix queue. (laughs) There's any number of things that can be competing for our allegiance. But what Paul is saying is fix our eyes on Jesus. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. Live uh, as citizens of heaven in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so to close, I would like to close by reading chapter 2, verses uh, 6 through 11. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, to the point, uh, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, would we fix our lives and may the image that drives us be that Your Son Jesus is Lord. He is our Savior. May we live our lives in a manner uh, worthy of the message that He is our Lord. I pray this in Your Son's name. Amen.